The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. This is the Nonprofit Hour show from the Media Institute for Social Change on X-Ray FM. I'm Jason Dennington. On today's show, in recognition of tomorrow, December 1st, being World AIDS Day, we are featuring an interview with Wayne Mia, Executive Director, and Kristen Riley, Director of Social Work and Neighborhood Housing from Our House. Our House is an organization that has spent decades working in support of and making an impact in the lives of Portlanders coping with HIV and AIDS through healthcare, vital services and housing, as well as through their subsidiary programs, Esther's Pantry and Todd's Corner. At the conclusion of today's show, we have one installment in our series of profiles of the 2015 Willamette Week Give Guides Skidmore Prize winners. This week, we'll be hearing a brief interview and speech from prize winner Leticia Aguilar from the Adelante Mujeres Chicas program. But first, we'd like to gain some perspective on the current state of HIV and AIDS care and prevention in this country as well as the world to get a broader understanding of where we have come from and the progress that has been made. For most listeners, say 35 and older, we have lived for decades with an intimate knowledge of the severity of the HIV AIDS crisis in the United States and around the globe, and many have been directly affected by the virus in our lives or know someone who has. However, with the increasing effectiveness of treatments and the improved outcomes for people living long-term with the disease, some groups have become almost cavalier about basic steps towards prevention. For example, in some recent studies, it has been revealed that people under the age of 25 in the last few years have turned the tide and are actually seeing percentages increasing in new HIV cases being diagnosed each year versus other age groups. And many are not even aware that they are infected. This is not occurring just in areas of the developing world where education efforts about safety are still ongoing, but also in Europe and North America where many of these efforts are long established. So we'll begin the show listening to an excerpt that comes to us from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services from the World HIV AIDS Symposium about the last 30 years since HIV was first identified as a unique disease in 1985. Once we got the virus in our hands, namely in 1984, and 1985, then we began to study in earnest uh, some of the pathogenic events. By the time the virus was discovered, there were more than 500,000 people in the United States infected with it, and millions worldwide. We um, saw, um, really ended up following in the AIDS clinic about 25,000 patients with HIV. The average person we would see would have four or five opportunistic infections and then succumb. AIDS was and is a public health problem, but one with many social and political facets. The AIDS community's response was a mixture of insider and outsider tactics. So sitting down with policymakers, trying to work out and find the best solution. At the same time, a lot of street activism, a lot of demonstrations. The activists uh, were making extremely good points 
about the uniqueness of this, the need to do more, the need to be less rigid in our regulatory approaches towards the approval and testing of new drugs, and the rigidity and lack of flexibility in how we design clinical trials. 1985 was the year that a boy with hemophilia named Ryan White was barred from attending school because he was infected with HIV. That same year, actor Rock Hudson died of AIDS, bringing attention to the disease in a way no one had before. In 1987, the AIDS memorial quilt was displayed for the first time on the National Mall. The following year, Dr. Koop's message, Understanding AIDS, was mailed to every household in America. In 1990, Ryan White died at the age of 18, and Congress passed the Ryan White Care Act, providing access to treatment for uninsured people with HIV AIDS. Because of the, the HIV virus that I have attained, uh, I will have to retire. The, the following year, basketball star Magic Johnson held a press conference that changed the way many people thought about HIV AIDS. The early 90s were marked with progress despite some setbacks. In 1994, an NIH trial found AZT was shown to prevent transmission from mother to infant during childbirth. The first protease inhibitor was approved in 1995, a huge advance in managing HIV infection. However, AIDS remained the leading cause of death for African Americans. We were 25% of folks uh, impacted by HIV in 1986. Uh, and yet, you know, the response in black communities and the delivery of services at that time, primarily prevention and awareness services, to black communities were disproportionately low. By 2002, about half the people living with HIV worldwide were women. For women to recognize the risk, especially for heterosexual African American women and Latinas in the U.S., I think risk awareness is still a very, 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 very big challenge. As the epidemic entered its third decade, the focus turned global. In 2003, President Bush announced the President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR, providing billions of dollars to fight and treat HIV AIDS in countries around the world. PEPFAR has been really the most remarkable program. We uh, are now at 3.2 million people on antiretroviral treatment, all of whom would have died. Uh, I think it's a remarkable contribution that the American people should feel very proud of. Now it's part of President Obama's broader global health issue, so it's even taken bigger impact now because it's being linked to other global health problems. And today we're releasing our national HIV AIDS strategy. Announced in 2010, President Obama's national HIV AIDS strategy was aimed at preventing infections, expanding access to care, and reducing disparities. I think that we are in a period of time where we have the tools to end the AIDS epidemic in America today and across the globe. And that's critically important and it's exciting. And now on to our interview with Wayne Mia and Kristen Riley of Our House. Here's Phil Bussey. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Media Institute for Social Changes Nonprofit Hour. Very pleased to have two guests uh, in the studio with me, uh, both from, from our house. Uh, uh, Wayne Mia, who is executive director. How are you doing today? Pretty good, thanks. And uh, Kristen Riley, who is the director of social work and neighborhood housing and care. 
How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, and now, Wayne, let's let's just start out. If you, you can just tell us what our house is. Um, interesting question because our house has been evolving. Originally, we started out as strictly a residential care facility for people who had HIV and AIDS. And we started in 1988. So at that period of time, everyone that came to us actually did not leave. I mean, they came and passed away. Um, around the mid-90s, things began to change and uh, people started to be able to go out and live on their own. So from that beginning, we have evolved with various different programs. In about 2005, we began a program called Neighborhood Housing and Care, where we go out into the community. And the community now uh, extends to Gresham and Hillsboro, so it's a pretty broad range. We go out in the community and serve people who are struggling to maintain their independence because of the disease or because um, of various other issues that may be related to the disease. So we do that. We also have acquired a food bank and a thrift store. And we um, have people who come once a month. We have maybe 700 clients that come once a month and get um, a whole bunch of food to take home for the month. Uh, we also have a free thrift store as well. And then we provide services such as pet care and other things that other nonprofits do not pay for um, so that if people really don't have any funds, then they can turn to us and ask us for money. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating how dynamic our house is because, I, I, I mean, in residency, there's about 15, 14 uh, men and women. And, and, but yet you're serving, like you said, several hundred. Yes, we're serving, um, you know, if you count Esther's Pantry on Todd's Corner, we're serving over 700 people. And let's, uh, let's, let's just specify Esther's Pantry and, and Todd's... Todd's Corner. Todd's Corner. Uh, who, are, who, are those, who are those named after? Um, Esther's Pantry and Todd's Corner were both named after uh, drag queens who have, who have since passed. And um, it's just in honor of what they've done. Todd's Corner, he had a ton of clothes, so he <laughs> donated it and began, um, began that. Esther's Pantry um, was an organization that had gone from place to place, and now it's, it resides at our house. Um, and it was named after Esther. Wonderful. And, and um, Kristen, can you talk to a little bit about, um, I mean, it, it is interesting that uh, the disease of, of AIDS has changed so much uh, over the last 20, well, 30 years, uh, you know, since, since our house started. And as Wayne was explaining, that's obviously, that's made your, not necessarily your mission, but your function have to change um you know and and can you talk a little bit about the challenges and and the opportunities that provides sure um well i came on to our house in 2001 and i actually had no hiv experience at all as a social worker my background was primarily in mental health and addictions and that's the reason why i was hired because it was maybe i was about five years into the trend when hiv was starting to change People were living longer. Our house was no longer a place where people came to spend their last days. 
and it was starting to be defined more as a chronic illness than a terminal illness. So um, I was, yeah, I, I, I came on to help people learn how to deal with the issues that they were facing over longer periods of time. And, and does that bring, that change I, I think would bring some optimism, but also bring a, a, you know, a real difficulty as well. I mean, you're, you're dealing with something that is now going to define, uh, you know, years of somebody's life. Sure. I mean, I think like with any chronic illness, it's, some, it's something that people continue to struggle with. The good news is that the medicines have changed so much that life expectancy is a lot longer. But what we have seen uh, are that people are aging. Um, you know, the disease progression still affects their body in many ways, where HIV is actually quite stable with many of our clients, but they're contending with other chronic diseases mm -hmm. that develop, like pulmonary and heart disease, cancers, kidney failure. Um, so those are the struggles. And stigma, stigma is still still very loud issue in this, with this population. So sure, all of those things remain. Um, there, is, there is a lot of hope. But I would say that a lot of the services, not just our house, but a lot of the services in the community have had to change to, to fit the fact that people are living longer and their needs change as a result of that. This is Phil Bossi. It's the Nonprofit Hour. And I'm talking with Wayne Mia, the executive director for Our House, and Kristen Riley, who is the director of social work and neighborhood housing and care. We're going to take a quick music break and we'll be right back. This is Phil Bussey, and you are listening to the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. I am pleased to be speaking to Wayne Mia, who's the executive director for our house, and Kristen Riley, who's the director of social work and neighborhood housing and care. Kristen, that's a long title. <laughs> yes, it is. I, I assume that that, that somewhat encapsulates uh, uh, that, that you're doing, you have a lot of different functions you have to serve at our house. Uh, well, the re I mean, there's a reason for that. You know, the, the director of the NHCP, um, didn't happen until just a couple of years ago, and we—I was just one of one of many um, 
but also one of three clinical directors who've been co-managing this program since its inception eight or nine years ago. So when it was, we've been expanding, our, our success has been widespread and it was decided that we needed one director, I, it just made sense that it would be one of the three of us. Um, heart is in it. We understand the history and all of the changes that have happened with this program and with this population. So, and and I mean, Wayne, how difficult does it make your job that um, AIDS is not necessarily at the forefront of the media's attention or sort of the general population's attention anymore? Certainly in the '80s, uh, with groups like ACT UP, or certainly I remember. Time magazine, when it was on the cover of Time, there, there seemed to be a lot of attention. I would think it would make potentially fundraising more more difficult or uh, finding support. Is is that an incorrect assumption? You know, I, I think it's kind of correct, but kind of not. Um, when I started with, when I became executive director 10 years ago, we were about a third of our budget that we are now. So we had we were budgeted at about a uh, million dollars when I took over. Now we're close to three point five million dollars. And um, congratulations! That's that's a, that's a major <laughs> accomplishment over ten years. Yeah, and I and it's because of a, a lot of things. One is that because the disease is changing, and because, as you know, healthcare and the way we look at healthcare is changing significantly now with Obamacare and and all the other aspects of um, how we deal with people that are sick, um, we have to be very creative in how we get our money. And so we've been, we've been lobbying um, the state legislature, we've been lobbying the administrators, we've been talking to donors, we've been uh, doing all types of creative things to not only change the way we provide services, <clears throat> but also change the way we look at how people are taken care of and make sure those people that we collaborate with or that fund us know that we're not just treating HIV, but we're treating the whole issue around health care. And so when you look at it that way, you're seeing much more than just AIDS, much more than just um, a single issue that we're dealing with. And, and so you are receiving money from the state and the county? We are receiving money from the state. And we're, we have a Medicaid contract with um, at our um, residential care facility. And we were just recently awarded $350,000 for the next biennium uh, to serve our neighborhood housing and care program. So yes, we're we're being funded by the state. Also, HUD funds us as well. We were awarded um, a grant of special significance from HUD uh, to fund neighborhood housing and care and our um, residential care facility as well. And so you came on as executive director, Wayne, 10 years ago. What, what, what were you doing before that, and, and what, um, what brought you to our house? Um, I was working for Pacificor before that for 30 years, and then I decided to retire because I wanted to do something else. Um, Sounds I, like a busy retirement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened was I was on the board for um, Unity, which was a mental health um, organization at that time, it's a pretty large organization, and uh, we had just recently needed to find a new CEO for that organization. 
and <clears throat> the board decided that I would be the next CEO for Unity. But at that time, we were in the middle of a merger with two other organizations and formed Cascadia. So um, <clears throat> once that was formed, then I no longer had to be CEO of Unity, but uh, remained on the board, actually remained chair of the board for Cascadia for several years, then um, came to our house. And, and with the financial growth that's happened over the last 10 years, are there some plans that you can share for the upcoming years? How our house is going to uh, increase its, its services or its, its mission? Well, we're really trying to um, not only increase the p number of people that we serve, but also look at how we can make our uh, income much more sustainable than it ever has so that we don't have to depend so highly on our fundraising efforts. Um, so, you know, what we're looking at is maybe trying to duplicate the model that we have with our neighborhood housing and care program and expand it to other um other chronic diseases and see how that works. And we've been asked by the state and other um, other agencies to help them develop that type of model of care. And and can we talk about that in two parts? Uh, just real simply, Kristen, if you can explain what that the quote unquote the model of care, what that really means, uh, and then if we can talk about how that can be applicable to what other diseases and um. Um, <clears throat> well, we have, I mean, the clinical services that we provide are social work, nursing, and occupational therapy. Um, we've, we've, set, we've set up the program. I mean, the, the, the primary goal of the program is to help people obtain independence and sustain that level of independence so that they don't need to visit long-term care facilities or even ER hospitalizations, re re reducing the costs. Um, is there a typical cycle that your service or your help goes through? Does somebody come in and then three months later they're independent, or is that is that too easy? That's it's not easy to say that. I would say that that's that would be pretty fast, <laughs> right? But it, it really varies. I mean, some people come to us in pretty acute phases, and some of those people are served in our residential care program, mm -hmm. and then get to a place of stability and they're ready to leave and move out into the community and neighborhood housing and care is able to help support that transition. Sometimes that can take up to a year. Sometimes people are on our caseloads for many years with varying levels of you know needing services. We might see them once a week for a year and then fall back to just seeing them once a month or phone calling them once a month. And, and has it made it more difficult with the lack of affordable housing or the, the housing crunch that's, that's really happening over the last two, three, five years in Portland? Is I would assume that's making your job more difficult. It's made it incredibly difficult. It's changed a lot. At the beginning of the program, I mean, most of the, most of the clients we were serving were within a five to ten mile radius of our house. And now they're 20, 30 miles out so that that greatly affects our capacity and the number of yeah the number of people that our our folks are able to see so and it would just seem to be a um a harder goal to reach if you're saying you're just trying to you're you're trying to get to somebody that can be financially stable to afford $500 a month for rent is a lot different than affording $1200 a month yeah 
Yeah, it's it, it can be frustrating, especially when there are so many things we're working on with people to help them maintain independence, paying their bills on time, money management, symptom management, all these things. And then right in the middle of it, when they have to, they can't afford, the rent has increased, we're looking at moving and all of the chaos and upheaval that goes along with that can be very, um, be very difficult. Let's uh, let's let's switch the tone to something more uh, optimistic. Wayne, I'm I'm happy to read them, but I would imagine that you know some of the awards that uh, our house has has received. You guys have been consistently in the the top hundred nonprofits to work for in Oregon. Um, do you want to go through some of those numbers? Yeah, I mean, ever since that program started, um, as you may know, the hundred best nonprofits to work for is determined by surveys of people's staff. And so when when those surveys are taken, they're looked at as a whole of all the nonprofits in Oregon. Uh, ever since that program started, we have been on the list. And in the past few years, we have been in the top five of the list. Uh, we were number one um, in 2013 of the large nonprofits. The other uh, program that we've been um, part of is the top workplaces and the Oregonian does that each year um, and the we've been on that list ever since they started as well the last two years we've been number two in the small workplaces in Oregon and um, who's, who's number one you know I don't know okay. but I, but I do know that they gave a 16% um, raise to all their employees <laughs> so that's kind of hard to compete with so but anyway, we've um, you know we've been consistently noted for that. This year, um, we have several awards. One is a award for a volunteer. It's a statewide award that was given. Another one is an award for top leadership in Oregon Healthcare Association. So another one of our employees got that. We've you know I, we've got many of our employees have received um, statewide awards for the work that they do. So we're very pleased with um, what's been happening with our house. Absolutely, and, and and that says so much about the work that our house is doing, and also the culture that must be there. I mean, especially from when the votes are the 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 criteria or the votes are self or staff generated. I mean, it's a must be an incredibly stressful uh, place to work, uh, emotionally stressful, um, yet. Obviously, there's there's a lot of job satisfaction there. Is can either of you speak to why that is happening? Uh, I would I would say that it, it is it is hard work. It's incredibly hard work, and burnout in healthcare I think can be high anywhere. <clears throat> We're supportive. We have we have a lot of on the job training, not just educational but emotionally supportive. We have you know, we support flex time. I think our our directors are very supportive of their supervisees taking mental health days and vacations. It's a great place for job development. If there are things that you see, projects you'd like to take on because it interests you, you're encouraged to do that. Um, we want job satisfaction, and that can happen in a number of ways. So we're, we're always looking for creative and innovative ways for that to happen. Absolutely. and But it would also seem working at a place like our house um, it would be hard to not take some of that work home with you, at least emotionally, or, or not take it out into when you're out in Portland and at a brew pub or uh, just hanging out, not to also recognize 
the the hardship that's out there as as is i think a, a dichotomy of any social work you know i i think it's it sounds like it's an awful awful awfully stressful place to work but you know when you go to work there um <clears throat> you hear a lot of laughter you hear a lot of people just um chatting and and really having a, a good time at work and it's it's also chatting with the residents too i mean um, like yesterday, I was out in the garden, and maybe five residents were out there just doing stuff. We had a project of rebuilding one of the benches out there, and it was just so satisfying just to see them out and doing stuff and being uh, able to see some accomplishments for things that they've done. Because when you're when you're there, the residential care facility. You know, you tend to think they're going to be staying in their room just watching TV and just having meals, but Gosh, this, uh, we were out in the therapeutic garden. We were just um, making advancements on um, different, different things. We were picking some vegetables for harvest. We were rebuilding the benches. And so it was a, a wonderful day to, to really spend with not only just the residents, but the staff, some volunteers, too. It's, it's just important for us to have fun and social connection with each other, uh, not just staff, volunteers, everyone there, the clients and the residents. It's really important and it's a big part of what we do. Um, socials, we lots of celebrations, every holiday is celebrated, beach outings, all kinds of activities that happen for the residents. Volunteers and staff also attend just to, just to kind of build a different kind of rapport with the people that we're serving, have a different kind of connection and relationship with them, so. Um. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am happy to be talking to Wayne Mia, who's the executive director for Our House, Kristen Riley, who's the director of social work and neighborhood housing and care. We're going to take a musical break. We'll be right back. One day out of life 
This is the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. I'm Phil Bussey, and I am talking today with two representatives from our house, Wayne Mia and Kristen Riley. Our house is a uh, resident facility as well as a program that reaches several hundred uh, men and women in, in the, the greater Portland area. Um, you know, I, a number of years ago, was uh, asked to come volunteer and am so happy that I did that. Uh, I came in on Sunday evenings and uh, helped prepare, serve, clean up meals, uh, visit with um, some of the some of the residents who were uh, at at the facility. And it was uh, Wayne, as you were explaining, it's a very the actual physical facilities at, at our house are both incredibly peaceful. Uh, you're just just south of Burnside and off of Northeast 28th. That's right. And which is a pretty rambunctious area. And you turn the corner and there's a sort of solace that's there, just a tranquility. Um, and as well in the actual house, uh, it does feel like a, a, a dorm room for, for grownups uh, in, in the way that there's a lot of positive energy and, and um, you know, in, in spite of uh, the hardship, that's obviously uh, a common denominator for some of the people. How can you just explain to people what what is the value of of volunteering for uh, these these Sunday dinners or any other ways that people can get involved? Well, I think one of the value values of volunteering is really getting to know firsthand uh, people with HIV. Uh, many people, they'll say, well, I don't know anyone with HIV, or um, they'll be, they'll, they'll have some sort of stigma, whether it's overt or whether it's hidden. They'll have some sort of stigma against people with HIV. And many of our uh, residents and clients, I would say 80% have histories of mental illness, maybe 60% have histories of um, substance abuse, about 20% have been homeless at one time or another. Um, oh, I bet 50% have some sort of cognitive issues. You take all of that, and then maybe 70% of our uh, people are LGBT. You take all of that, and you add the stigma of all of those things plus HIV, they've had a very rough life. And so when you volunteer at a place like our house, you see that people are people, and you also see the respect that everyone has for each other and the compassion everyone has for each other. Whether they're volunteers or staff or residents or clients, you see that everywhere. So I think volunteering for our house could be a huge reward, not just for the people they serve, but also for the volunteers themselves. Yeah, I would, I would say that after talking with a lot of volunteers over the years, they think they're walking into our house to give, and what they get in return is twofold. The relationships that form there surpass their time that they volunteer. I mean, these are, there are friendships that have just lasted forever, and that's it's invaluable. Absolutely. No, and it, it really was, um, for, for speaking on my own personal uh, experiences, it was incredibly rewarding. Uh, to, to borrow your word, and it was something that uh, on Sunday evenings I looked forward to, and it was a very centering uh, time of the week, and and 
the interactions um, with the residents were great. And, and you know, in, in spite of, Wayne, as you were explaining, uh, you know, hardships that many of these, these, these men and, and, and women uh, had had, um, it, it, there was a real optimism or, or sort of buoyancy at, at our house, which is remarkable. And I, I don't know if either of you are going to be able to answer this in a quick way, but how do you create that culture or that mood? Um, it's, it's one thing to say that you want that, uh, but to actually create a mood where there is uh, mental, emotional health stresses can I go first? <laughs> it's <laughs> I mean, a tough question. It's a hard question. There's a lot. There's a lot. But the first thing, the first thing that comes to my mind is that we, we really, we really respect differences. We really appreciate each other. And it, it, you walk in and you have personality. You have people with varying interests. It's it's not homogeneous place at all. And and we we respect and totally value those differences and celebrate them. And to me, that's what makes it so peaceful and accepting. It's just a place you can walk into and, and feel, feel accepted, feel like you're at home. And I don't know if this makes sense, but there's almost a summer camp feeling. Not in like a rambunctious, but just in sort of uh, the, the carefree nature and just uh, taking a, a grab bag of different personalities and, and putting them together. It, it had that summer camp, relaxed, supportive sense to it. I think people who, we all have different roles there, and we're all pretty serious about it. We're all there for reasons that we're passionate about, anywhere from housekeeping to the, the nursing services to the executive director. But there's a, a realization that we, like what Wayne was saying, we really are just human beings. And the need to be light in that, to, to just be connect with each other with no no power differences, no, we're all, we're all just here doing this together. That's just as valuable as the level of service that we're providing. It's just as important as providing quality of care to us is just having that, bringing that humanity to our work. But you think about the name Our House and it's, um, for me, it implies a huge family and a family of volunteers, of staff, of, of residents, of clients, of donors even, that um, really have very, very similar values, very similar uh, missions. And we really are there um, because of the mutual respect that we see. Um, and those values are the cohesive nature of our house. Um, when I first came there, it was there. And it just continued to grow. And so um, as we grow bigger, I think we just, it just feels that much stronger. And, and clearly our house is, is doing something very well. We talked earlier about some of the recognitions of the wards. Uh, we've mentioned about uh, some of the, the clients or the, the men and women that you work with. You also talked about uh, it's a model that's now being replicated uh, and, and, not and not just for for AIDS patients, but for others patients. Can you talk about how does one replicate uh, medical, emotional um, housing services? Uh, what are sort of the core values of the core tenets, and then t towards what um, mental or sorry medical issues are those being replicated? 
you know that's that's the question because it's not it's not currently being replicated we're people are trying to uh, decide how to replicate it so we were approached by a provider um, recently who came and said you know we see this model we see how it works um, we see the various aspects of it and it not only includes medical care but there are so many other things like nutrition, like um, ability to get food, like housing, like um, ability to coordinate um, with other <clears throat> providers, um, how to go shopping, how to how to pay your rent, how to count, make sure you're taking your right medication. How can we um, how can we replicate that entire thing for not just people with HIV, but for people with other chronic illnesses, and I, it's it's a huge question because we don't. I don't think we have the answer. I, it evolved uh, in the way we began to serve people and how we saw their needs. And Kristen can um, give you stories about you know individuals who um, saw that evolution. So you know. Yeah, I would think it'd be almost impossible just to have a three-ring binder that you can hand over to other another service provider. Well, I, I would say I mean, the heart of it, there's some pretty core concepts to the model. Um, we, it's important for us not to duplicate the services that people already have access to out there or are already receiving. We wanna we want to understand what are the gaps in services or why why can they not access those services and help facilitate that. Um, it's important for us not to do for them. If we're teaching someone to self-sustain, then we, we have to teach them. We can't do it for them. We're not going in and just filling a Medibox. We're not just giving them some bus passes. We're teaching them how to buy the bus passes, how to find the right bus to get on, how to get there. It, the teaching is very important. Some of that we might have to do for them or with them for a while before we can pull back. But that's, that's one of the biggest reward, but really an important tenet of the model. Um, it's also important for us to recognize what people's strengths are, what their own goals are for being independent. And most importantly, it's really important for us to decide. A lot of programs out there have their funding sources dictate the frequency from which they can see clients, what their goals are going to be and when they're reached when we when we can admit someone and when they can discharge and for us all of those decisions are made by the clinicians on the team if someone's in crisis and they need three visits that week they will get three visits that week and so that has that is really those are the things that have defined success of this program and that's what has kept us ahead of what's going on out there in HIV and that's the those are the concepts that we 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 think can be replicated with any other population in need out there Kristen Riley, Wayne Mia, thank you both for all the uh, amazing work that, that our house does. Um, thank you for coming into the studio to talk today. You guys have a couple fundraisers coming up. There's an ongoing fundraiser, the, the dinner series events, which sounds, uh, it, it sounds like it takes some of the, that, the, the character of our house and, uh, and offers it out uh, to people. Is that right? Right. Um, the... Dinner series event is a really um, amazing event that um, we take advantage of the foodies out there that really like to go to dinners. And um, our our honorary chair this year is Gregory Gaudet. 
and he is um he i don't know if you remember but he was on top chef this year one of the finalists for top chef and he um does some amazing dinners he i think he has two dinners on the dinner series there are also some uh, james beard nominated chefs who have been and are um sponsoring dinners as well and uh, where where are these dinners happening Dinners are happening in people's homes. Okay. And I'm I'm actually sponsoring two this year, one in my home in March, and then um, another one um, in a restaurant. And so, um, you know, there's people pay from maybe 65 to $200 per person to attend some of those dinners. But, um, you know, it's really not the cost. It's the experience that you get when you go to those dinners. And, um, you know, any one of them are great dinners to go to and you're doing all of the profit that from those dinners go to our house and if and i assume somebody can hop on your website and and find out about the dinners yeah they can find out about the dinners um when they hop on the website you may be disappointed to see that a lot of the very popular ones are already sold out but there are still some seats left at some of the others so yeah hop on the website and um go to dinner series and then you can take a look and in February, you guys have your big event at the, the art museum, correct? Yeah, uh, I think it's February 20th. It's the Saturday uh, Saturday after Valentine's Day at the Portland Art Museum. And uh, the theme this year is Mad Hatter's Ball. So it's a takeoff on Alice in Wonderland. So it should be a very fascinating um, uh, event. Wayne Mia, Executive Director for Our House, uh, Kristen Riley, the Director of Social Work and Neighborhood Housing and Care. Thank you both for providing some insights and thoughts about uh, the fantastic work that you do. Uh, this is Phil Bussey. It's been the Nonprofit Hour. We have one more song to take us out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. By the time the guests arrive Thank you, Phil. A few weeks back, you heard our interview with Nick Johnson telling us about Willamette Week's Give Guide. This year's Give Guide profiles 143 nonprofit organizations in the Portland area and through the end of the year provides a one stop location for researching and donating to the causes that they work on. You can find out more about the Give Guide at giveguide.org. The Give Guide also celebrates the work of four outstanding staffers from nonprofits who go above and beyond in their work through the award of the Skidmore Prize. Each week, we are giving you a profile of one of these Skidmore Prize winners. Today, we meet Leticia Aguilar of Adelante Mujeres Chicas program. We'll first hear a short talk that Phil Bussey had with her before listening to her acceptance speech 
from GiveGuide's launch party at Revolution Hall on November 3rd. We're at Revolution Hall and we are talking with Leticia. I can't say your last name. I am so sorry. Aguilar. And, and, and also, I, I, I'm going to have trouble. I'm just not even going to try with the nonprofit. It's Adelante Mujeres. And tell me what uh, they do. So Adelante Mujeres is a nonprofit that uh, works to empower low-income Latino families in Washington County. And talk to me a little bit about how did you first get involved with them? I got involved because I wanted to work uh, and give back to the community and support uh, Latino families uh, who are facing the same struggles that I faced when I came to this country. Um, um, so let's back up a little bit and one, can you tell us a little bit about your story, how you arrived in Portland? So I came to this country as a teenager. I um, moved here from Mexico and uh, I've been working in the nonprofit for the last uh, six years in Adelante Mujeres, and, and, but it's in Washington County. That's our primary work there. And, and maybe just explain a little bit about the differences between what happens in Washington County or why, why it's different in Washington County than Multnomah County or other counties. Are there things that are specific to either the demographics or the social services available there? Well, uh, we work more in the rural area, Forest Grove, to be more specific, that's where we are uh, based. And so we work primarily with Latino families, low-income Latino families. And so we haven't had yet uh, the opportunity to expand to Multnomah County, but our focal point is in uh, Washington County with rural, more rural area families. And how are the families finding you, or are you finding the families? We have many different programs. Our organization is divided into three different components, one of them being the education component, which is the one that I work in. Um, it's the, there's a early childhood education, youth development, and the adult education. We also have an enterprise program to support Latinos who want to start their small businesses. We also hold the farmer's market. We hold a ESPERE component, which is School for Reconciliation and Forgiveness. And we have the agriculture component. So families um, either get um, recruited by, or not recruited, but referred by other organizations who know of the organization, or um, we just have such a large uh, and different variety of programs that they are just come to us. And, and so you've been there six years, and, and is there uh, one girl, one woman that you've worked with that you can share her story that's really been inspirational to you? Yes, I've worked with, I've had the privilege to work with a specific group of girls since third grade. They are now in sixth or ninth grade. And um, I've been able to follow a group of about 60 girls and uh, uh, retained a little over 30 of them. And I can share one story. One, um, one of my students that came to me as a third grader, she, her mom was deported that um, right before she came to me. Um, she went through a lot of difficulties uh, being the oldest one in the family, only third grader, and had little siblings. She had to kind of be a role model to them. I've been able to follow her all through um, nine, now ninth grade. Uh, recently, last year, she lost her mom in Mexico. Her mom passed away. Um, she was in a car accident, and she died. And so it was very difficult for her not to be able to see her mom uh, right after she she was deported and being away from her mom, but yet she has managed to um, stay focused in her education and has been able to accomplish so many things, uh, being the oldest daughter and being a role model to her uh, siblings. And I'm just very proud of the fact that she has been able to accomplish many things and is doing great academically and uh, is uh, ready to pursue a higher education when she graduates from high school. Fantastic. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and congratulations on the award. You're very welcome. Thank you. We named uh, the Skidmore Prize because of the inscription on the Skidmore Fountain in Old Town. If you haven't been there, 
It shows a quotation by C.S. Wood which reads, good citizens are the riches of a city. The Skidmore Prize applicants are truly the riches of our city. We'd like to introduce Leticia Aguilar. She is the Chicas Program Coordinator at Adelante Mujeres. She <laughs> Leticia assists more than 400 Latina girls in Forest Grove annually by providing leadership education, mentorship, and college prep. Her prize is sponsored by Grady Britain, and we welcome Andy from Grady Britain, the creators behind our wonderful website, to the stage who will present her award. Leticia, we welcome you to say a few words. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you all for being here tonight. I am truly honored to be here with you, and I am very grateful to be one of the award recipients. I want to start by thanking my wonderful family, my husband, and my kids, and I think they are truly my biggest supporters. <laughs> I also want to thank Adelante Mujeres for giving me the opportunity to work in the Chicas Youth Development Program. Adelante Mujeres empowers so many low-income Latino families in the Washington County, and they have also empowered me by supporting my professional development and allowing me to do such an amazing work. I also want to um, thank the Willamette Week gift guide for recognizing the incredible impact that Adelante Mujeres has on our entire community. I came to this country when I was 12 years old. During my teenage years, I faced many difficulties. I didn't speak English and was frequently bullied. All of these experiences made me excessively self-conscious and made me feel ashamed of my language and my culture. During those years, I don't recall ever having an adult, a mentor, or any school counselor who uh, was there to support me, nobody to encourage me or guide me, no one who really understood my struggles. And that's what motivated me to work for Adelante Mujeres. At Adelante Mujeres, we support immigrant families who are facing the same struggles that my family and I once faced. And that's why I love my job. I honestly can't tell you how much I love my job. There hasn't been one day where I say, oh geez, I don't wanna go to work today. <laughs> As a Chicas coordinator, I support and empower many young Latina girls. I feel connected to these girls because I can relate to the challenges that these girls are facing. I want to be the support that I wish I had when I was their age. I work to foster these girls' cultural identity, self-esteem, but most important of all, I empower them as Latina girls. I encourage these girls to be all they can be, and I work to strengthen their sense of belonging. But I really get so much in return from these girls. I am inspired and humbled by how hard these students work and how dedicated they are, and they work very hard to never give up their dreams. Through my work at Adelante Mujeres, I have met the most amazing girls with the most remarkable stories. This is stories of successes and challenges. And I know that these stories will stick with me forever because they are, they are what keeps me motivated to do the work that I do. I want to end by thanking the entire team of Adelante staff. It is truly a privilege to work with such a wonderful team who are very dedicated and passionate about the work that they do. And I also want to thank all of our wonderful donors and volunteers. This work would not be possible without your generous support. And know that together we are here to make a real difference in our community. Thank you.
We've now come to the end of this week's Nonprofit Hour show. The show has been produced and edited by myself, Jason Dennington, and is recorded at the production studios of X-Ray FM. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle, at Nonprofit Hour, and find archives of past shows on our SoundCloud page. We'd like to thank our studio guests on the show this week, Wayne Mia and Kristen Riley from Our House. We'd also like to thank the Media Institute for Social Change, our regular hosts, Phil Bussey and Julie Falk, KXRY Radio X-Ray FM, and most of all to you, our regular listeners. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to have you join us again next week at noon on Monday for the Nonprofit Hour Show.